Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that we are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the very word of God. All right, so it's your birthday, and you have a couple um, cards sent from various relatives. And that's okay if you want to think back to when that was true, maybe when you were young. And um, you're excited to open up the card from your grandma, grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, um, maybe a friend. And as you open up that card, let's have a moment of honesty here. Maybe you appreciate the greeting card that was sent to you, but there's one thing you're really looking for. It's your birthday, and you're hoping that the, you know, the little... $5 $5 bill, $10 bill, 20 falls out. Are you honest? That's what you're really looking for? Um, can we be honest about something else for a moment? Someone is listening to a need that you have, showing a lot of concern. You can see it on their face. And as you pour out kind of your complaint, the struggle that you're facing, your friend looks at you and offers to pray. Offers to pray. Do you really appreciate the prayer? Or are you hoping maybe that something else falls out? Something a little more practical. The prayer is nice. You appreciate the thought. But what you're really thinking is the real money is somewhere else. My aim this morning as we study this text that Jenny just read for us is to help all of us. I mean all of us. I mean me and you together to change that perspective. The best thing, the best thing that we can do for one another is to pray for one another. You believe it? Prayer provides Christians with the strength they need to remain faithful to God, and nothing could be more significant than that. So, The Apostle Paul seems to believe what I just said. Hopefully I'm accurately reflecting what he says in these verses. And in these five verses, we can see first the reasons to pray. There's there's a lot of reasons to pray, but just from what Paul says here, we can see reasons to pray. Second, the confidence that we have in prayer And then last, the effects of praying. The reasons to pray, the confidence to pray, the effects of praying. So as the apostle begins to bring this letter to a close, 
he starts this final chapter of 2 Thessalonians by, of course, requesting prayer for himself and his missionary colleagues. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, he says, pray for us. Why does he ask for them to pray? Why should we pray for others? One reason is because, one reason is because praying for one another is not a nice gesture. We have got to get over sort of that natural impulse to think that's what prayer is. Prayer is a substantive way of helping and serving and loving one another. Now, I don't need to tell you that the Bible would also say, in many cases, it's not enough just to pray. But the Bible never says, don't pray for somebody, do something practical. The Bible never says that. Praying is a substantive way of helping, serving, and loving one another. The greatest thing you could do to serve, love someone is to pray for them. Maybe you should do more, but you should not do less. So Paul solicits the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.11 to help us by prayer. He believed that having people pray for him was having real help and support in his work. In Romans 15.30, Paul asks the believers in Rome, listen to what he says, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Praying for someone is a way to work with and help someone, to work on their behalf. It is how we can help people most effectively. So if we choose not to pray, if that's true, if praying for someone is helping, serving, loving them in the best way possible, if that's true, what does it mean when we don't pray? When we choose not to pray for one another? Is it not an indication, if not of our utter unbelief in the power and goodness of the God to whom we pray, then of the carelessness about the needs and burdens and trials that brothers and sisters face? We should help them. We should help one another. We can help one another. We can help one another by prayer. Now, I also want you to notice for just a moment, don't forget all that we've learned about the, the surrounding uh, situation, circumstances in which Paul wrote these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. Remember that Paul um, was only in Thessalonica for a short time, at, at the very least three weeks, probably not more than a couple of months. And so this is a new church, brand new believers, young in the faith, new converts, we might say. And yet Paul believes in the and, and, and says it's necessary for all Christians, no matter if you're new to the faith or you've been uh, walking with Jesus for a long time, to pray for and with each other. There's mutuality that existed here between Paul, the church planter, and the Thessalonians. Now, think of it. You would expect Paul, the pastor, the missionary, the apostle, the church planter, you would expect him to pray for his people, right? 
That's what you expect of your elders. They ought to be praying. You, You say, that's your job. You're supposed to be praying for me. But Paul turns the tables here and says, brothers, new believers in the faith, pray for us. Pray for us. The church is a family. There's need for mutual care for all members. Praying for one another is one of the greatest ways a healthy interdependency can thrive in the body of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray for one another. All of us should be engaged in this ministry of help. Now, another reason that we should pray for others is because prayer has, the, prayer has this ability to bring clarity about what it is we really want. If you're going to pray for someone, it's helpful to know what you should be praying about. What is the prayer request that Paul mentions here? Now, in some places, Paul solicits prayer but doesn't give any specific purpose for why he wants others to pray for him. But usually, when Paul requests prayer, he says exactly what he wants them to pray for him about. And that's always helpful. So when somebody says, pray for me, it's not wrong for you to look at them and say, what would you like me to pray for you about? It's clarifying. It's clarifying. Look what Paul says here. He gives a couple requests. First, he says, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Now, the word of the Lord refers to the gospel message. And the request is that it will run, that it will run with speed. That's the central aim of any missionary movement. That's what Paul's work was all about. The task of getting the message out and seeing it run far and wide. But Paul wants more than that. He, he wants the gospel message to speed ahead and, he says, and be honored. Now, the language he uses here of running and being honored reflects the familiar terms of the athletic contest in which a person runs well in a race, so well, in fact, that he wins and receives the honor of being crowned the victor. So when Paul first set out on his missionary journey, we are told in Acts 13, 49, that the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But Paul didn't just want that to happen. He didn't just want the message to be widely heard. He wanted the gospel message to be honored, accepted, believed. That's what happened in Thessalonica. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to pray that the same thing will happen in other places as the missionaries continue on their journey. Now think about this for a moment. Shouldn't Paul's prayer requests be ours as well? Shouldn't the greatest concern of our lives, the first thing they were asking people to pray for us about, be the advancement of the gospel in our own places in which we live. In our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, shouldn't we be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in every circumstance of our lives? What would you like me to pray for you about? The answer to that question is clarifying. 
what it is that we really are after. What are the priorities of our lives? This desire was central to Paul's life, and no doubt he wanted it to be central to the life of all believers. Now, Paul know that not, knew that not all could or even should be what we around here at Crosstown call a goer, someone who takes the gospel message into unevangelized places. But all Christians could and definitely should be a significant player in the great missionary movement. How? How so? Well, first, by prayer. And Paul goes on in verse 2, asking for prayer that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. From the very beginning, Christian missionaries have been subject to persecution for their work. And while Paul saw the gospel message have great success, you know from his story he also experienced time and time again persecution from those who had rejected the message. And it's not always one or the other, success or persecution. Paul knew quite well sometimes abundant fruit comes only through much pain. So a third reason to pray is because prayer is the primary means by which we engage in spiritual warfare. Now, I know that that can be a complicated phrase, but here's what I mean. Paul writes here, not all have faith. Those who reject the gospel are not always merely indifferent to it, but openly hostile. They do not see the gospel as good news, but as evil news. To them, the gospel is not a welcomed relief, but a suspicious threat. And yet, we are not um, to fight against the faithlessness of the world with the same kind of weapons that are wielded against us. So if your primary prayer is, I want the word of the Lord to advance and be honored in my life, regardless of my circumstances. But there are opposition. There's hostility that inevitably will come. What are you going to do about that? Paul says prayer is one of the primary ways that we engage in spiritual warfare. We don't retaliate. We don't respond in kind. We pray. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who hate us. And we pray good things for them, by the way, too, right? Prayer is the weapon of our warfare, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.4. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The whole armor of God is to be always donned with prayer in the Spirit. So those are are three reasons that we should pray. But now in verse 3, Paul contrasts the faithlessness of those who reject the gospel with the faithfulness of God. Notice what he says in verse 2 and in verse 3. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. You can see the contrast. Pretty obvious that Paul's wanting to put these two things together. It's the faithfulness of God that gives you and me the confidence to pray. Why do we pray? Well, there's lots of reasons, but is prayer going to work? Is it going to matter? And Paul says, God is faithful. 
that's the foundation. That's the assurance. That's the confidence that we have every time we pray. I don't see results. It doesn't seem like anything comes out of it, but God is faithful. So Paul wants us to be certain that the faithlessness of mankind will in no way stop God from being faithful. He puts them in contrast. Not everybody is of faith or faithful, but God is. Okay, so seems like a a battle ensuing there. Though God's purposes in the world are opposed, God's promises can never be thwarted. Think of it. Though God's promise or though God's purposes in the world are opposed, what God has promised can never be thwarted. Never. God is faithful. He has the power to accomplish and fulfill everything he has decreed. He's the sovereign Lord of all, but he not only has the power, he also has the character to see it through. He stands behind his promises. The Lord is faithful. So when we pray according to the promises of God, we can pray with the confidence that our prayers will be answered because God is faithful. Regardless of how discouraged, brothers and sisters, you might be or you might become, prayer can replenish our confidence because God is faithful. Prayer empowers us to persevere, to remain faithful regardless of circumstances because prayer points us to the only hope for enduring confidence, the faithfulness of God to the promises of God. Now, if that sounds so theoretical and uh, so theological, it seems impractical in life, I want you to see that Paul intends for this to be deeply personal and practical. When Paul puts forward the faithfulness of God, he could be reminding us that despite all efforts to suppress the gospel, God is not going to be stopped in his mission. The good news of the kingdom will go into all the world. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he could be saying that. But what Paul specifically says is concentrated on the Thessalonians themselves and what God will do for them. There's a shift in focus in verse 3, away from Paul and his team. Pray for us, in verse 1, becomes the Lord will establish you and guard you. So Paul believes that as they help him in prayer, they have now joined with him in the same spiritual battle. And that means, that means that they will now also become targets of satanic attack. Prayer is dangerous. It implicates the prayer as an agent in God's mission. Every time you stop and pray for somebody according to the promises of God, you've just become guilty in Satan's eyes of being on God's side. And in God's mission, he's not going to like that. So Paul wants you to know, prayer, (laughs) that God is going to protect you so that you will not fall. You will not stop engaging in the battle. The The faithfulness of God, Paul says, 
promises that God, here's what God will do. Here's the confidence that we have in God. God will establish us. Now, many English versions like the NIV rightly say he will strengthen you. That's the verb that Paul actually uses here. Now, do you see how personal that is? As you begin to pray for someone else, Paul says, God is faithful. He will strengthen you. He will strengthen you. You might think, I need people praying for me because I'm weak. Paul would say, true, but you want to be strong? Pray for someone else. God will strengthen you. As we pray, we are promised not only that God will be strong for us, we are promised that he will make us stronger and stronger. To be sure, this strength does not come independently of God. We are strengthened by his strength, as Ephesians 6.10 says. But united to him, united to him, by faith, we ourselves, Christians, are made strong, stronger and stronger, in fact, the more the enemy goes out against us. Similarly, the faithfulness of God promises that God will guard or protect us against the evil one. Now, what does that mean? It cannot mean that Christian missionaries, nor yet you in your workplace tomorrow, will be kept from all sorts of physical persecutions and sufferings. Our Bibles and Christian history tell us otherwise. So what does Paul mean when he says in verse 3, God will strengthen you and and God will guard you or protect you from the evil one? It means not that God will prevent us from the experience of suffering, but that he will make us strong enough to endure it. Of course, God could prevent the suffering, but if he doesn't, it must mean that he is faithfully achieving a good purpose in it. Now, that, this is the same theology of suffering that we saw back in chapter 2, uh, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. But Christians, we need to get this point. So let me, let me come at it a different angle. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes... This, he, he tells us Christians, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But instead, this is 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad When his glory is revealed. You see, God's up to something good in your trial. There's a connection between sharing in Christ's sufferings and the ability to be glad and rejoice when the glory of Christ is revealed. So the theology of suffering begins with the recognition that the suffering we face as Christians is never punishment from God, but sharing in the sufferings that he himself experienced in his son. And these sufferings are connected to the ability to escape the suffering that will come on the day of the Lord. When Christ returns, when Jesus will no longer be seen as savior by those who have rejected his gospel, but as destroyer and judge. The Apostle Paul understood how this worked. I'd like you to look at one other passage this morning with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Can you go there? 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul 
knows how this all works. He knows how the experience of persecution and suffering from the hands of wicked mankind never negates the promise of God to deliver us from the evil one. <laughs> he, he knows how it works. And so I want you to see 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's final letter. This is the last thing we have recorded from his pen. And notice starting in verse uh, 9 and verse 10 that the Apostle Paul, he, he knows the pain of being deserted by others and the experience of loneliness. Just look at it, verses 10 and 11. He writes in verse 13, hey, Timothy, when, when you come, bring my cloak. Why, why does he write that? Because he's in prison. He's not in the Hilton. He's in a cold, dark dungeon. Deserted, lonely, and cold. He, he warns in verse 14, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith who had done him great harm. Does this sound like Paul's having a good time? He's alone. He's deserted. He's been harmed, probably betrayed. He's cold. Verse 16, he says, when he had his first trial, no one came to his defense. No one. But in spite of all this, Paul never lost confidence in the faithfulness of God. Look what he says. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now, I doubt, I doubt, I could be wrong, but I doubt that Paul literally saw or had a vision of the Lord standing next to him. I think this is Paul looking back and reflecting on that trial when he found himself all alone, when he found himself defenseless. And he probably began to wonder if he could endure. Now, writing in this prison, thinking of the reality that he's probably about to be executed, Paul says, the Lord stood by me. And then he says this, verse uh, 17. He says, he was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, again, he knows he's about to be executed, and yet he writes this in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what Paul means when he says, you can bank on this. You can bank on this, Christian. The Lord is faithful. He will guard you. He will protect you from the evil one. It means God will see to it that his people persevere in their faith and will not be disqualified from resurrection into the consummated kingdom of God on that last day. Paul knows it. He believes it. He is confident. God is faithful. 
That's the confidence the believer ought to have in God. That's the confidence you and I should have in God. This is the confidence that if we have it, brothers and sisters, if you had that kind of confidence in God, you would be more prayerful, not less prayerful. You would pray more, not less. The more, and and, and watch this, and the more prayerful we are, the more we will come to expect results from our suffering. From our, I'm sorry, results from our praying. Prayer has many, many effects, but some of those effects, many of those effects become evident in your own life. So here's what I mean. Verse 4, Paul says this to the Thessalonians. And we have confidence, we're back in 2 Thessalonians 3. We have confidence in the Lord about you. Now that's an interesting way to speak, isn't it? I, I mean, Paul says, we are confident about you. But he says his confidence is in no way rooted in them, but in God about them. <laughs> that's, a, I love, that's a great way to speak. Because the more confident you and I are in God, the more we trust in his faithfulness to his promises, and the more we trust him, the more we remain faithful to him. If you and I could help each other trust in the faithfulness of God, if there is a way we could minister to one another and help each other depend and believe more and more in God's faithfulness, the result would be we would be more faithful to God too. Are you with me? We're often doing that backwards. Trying to get each other to be faithful to God with no rootedness. No basis for that. Paul says, the faithfulness to God only comes from faithfulness of God. So the more we could help each other, trust, see, believe that God is faithful, the effect would be surprising faithfulness in ourselves. This is not confidence in people, not even in God's people. It is confidence in God about his people. There's a big difference. Now, of course, we can expect, we've already been told this in this letter, that not all will remain faithful. Paul has already warned us of the great rebellion that's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. There, there will always be antichrists. There will always be apostates. And every time you see it, brothers and sisters, it will be a shock. Someone that you looked up to, respected, will fall away, will deny the Lord, will be found guilty of all kinds of hidden sins, and you'll find duplicity. It's going to happen. It's happened. It's going to happen more. But listen, what ought to be even more shocking What ought to be even more shocking is the countless number of 
ordinary Christians that the devil just can't seem to touch. You're probably sitting by some right now. Well, six feet away from some right now. Millions of brothers and sisters just like you who endure much tribulation and continue to cling to Christ. That's stunning. The devil is not surprised that he takes some down. The devil is stunned that he can't take down an ordinary believer like you and me. What's the explanation? It's because of the Lord. It's because of the Lord. It is because of the faithfulness of God. But brothers and sisters, it is the faithfulness of God at work through the encouragement and ministry of pointing one another to his faithfulness. Paul's confidence in God's faithfulness in verse 4 is no doubt intended to have the effect of motivating ordinary believers in Thessalonica to continue on in their Christian obedience. In fact, you'll notice how Paul ends this section in verse 5. It's another benediction. We talked about this last week. Do you remember what a benediction does, what it's for? Paul's prayer for the believers is that the Lord will direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So think of it, brothers and sisters. What what, what do we want for you? How can we pray for you? May the Lord direct your heart to God's love. Just ponder. May you find tomorrow morning a moment where you just stop and meditate on God's great love. That's what he's asking. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love. And, brothers and sisters, may the Lord direct your hearts to the steadfastness, that is, the endurance of Christ. May there be tomorrow morning a moment where you just stop and think of how much Christ endured trusting in the faithfulness of God. And what will be the effect of pondering the love of God? What will be the effect of pondering the steadfastness of Christ? Paul believes that by meditating and reflecting on how God has loved us and how Christ endured for us those same virtues, love and endurance, will be developed and exemplified in the believers. I've long spent the $10 that fell out of my birthday cards when I was a little boy. But I kept a few of those cards. And if you ever pull those out, maybe you have some, and read the words that a loved one wrote to you, the lasting effect of those words endures even beyond that money that was given. Where's the real money, huh? 
Where's the real gift? And so it is with prayer. As we pray for one another, we are doing the most good, the most help that we could possibly do. Maybe you should do more. Yeah, maybe. Absolutely. But never do less. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Let's pray together.